Alan Kring Productions, in association with the Emergent Light Studio, presents the Illinois State Collegiate Compendium, Academic Lectures in Business and Economics. This is Business Finance, FIL 240 for Spring Semester 2023. Today, the Federal Reserve System. The topic of this lecture is not in your textbook. However, I have provided you resources in your resources tab that will supplement the in-class lecture nicely. And if you go to your resources tab, you'll find two separate Uh, links. Federal Reserve Tools of Monetary Policy is a web page at the Federal Reserve which essentially does my lecture. It's a little more more in-depth than my lecture. It's not terrible. They don't write any of these in highly technical language but it gets it digs in there. It's about I don't know. Well let me see here. Give me a second. Let me check. Yeah this is the document and this is plenty it's about maybe a couple pages uh, if you had it in printed form but that's one of the uh, resources now also the Federal Reserve and this came out of the Bank of St. Louis which does a lot of education kind of stuff this is a video it's animated it's cheesy as heck uh, but it's maybe about 15 minutes long but it actually does everything that, in, that I say in this lecture on a lighter, on a lightweight level. And uh, this is produced for high school and early college students, uh, essentially going through the Federal Reserve System. So it, it's, it's worth it for you to spend the time to just listen to this, and you'll hear a lot of the terminology that I'm using in the class today. But like I said, in plain English is a video. It's a little bit more lightweight than my lecture. And the Federal Reserve Tools of Monetary Policy is a document. It's just a little heavier than what I do in the lecture today. So that gives you a couple of really nice uh, pieces for you to follow through to get the uh, information down. And I won't beat this topic up on the final exam. Just a couple of questions to make sure you understand the importance of Federal Reserve policy in finance and in your lives for that matter. While I'm here, let me show you something real quick, something completely off that subject. We'll be doing review for the final exam next week and one thing that I've posted already is a list of terms that would be a wonderful guide for you to study. And if you look at this, these are all the terms that I have gone done in this class. That's right, 116 terms or words that are new or have specific definitions in finance. And it's worth it for you to work your way through this list to make sure you're comfortable with what is being, uh, what's here. Uh, if, uh, I had a student last semester, actually, she copied this list and put it in an email message to me and said, can you define each of these terms? And I'm like, you know, I just sent her back, really? No, quit that. 
But at the same time, I mean, if you got one or two that you just, you got nothing and you can't find anything in your notes, you can ask me about those. And, or at the review, you can say, what do you mean by this or that? Okay, so this is a wonderful way to focus your studying and the qualitative part of the exam. Uh, so back off that for a minute. Let's look at the numbers just to see how grim it is today. Well, you, as you can see, it's just a really grouchy day. The Dow has barely eked out a little bit of an uptick, six hundredths of a percent, whoop de doo The S&P is down a, a measly 0.03 percent. And the only one that's down noticeably is the NASDAQ, which of course is exactly where I have my investments, which just irritates me to no end, but one way or the other, eh, there you go. Now, um, coming over here, crude is still in that band that I, it got back in that 72 to $79 band, and it's staying there. It seems to like it, as I had told you, that that price spike into the, mid-80s was temporary. It's gone, even today with the price of oil going per barrel going up, it's still staying below 79 a barrel. So we're still in good shape that way. Now rolling over here, the 10-year bonds, the yields have been sliding about 5.7 basis points. Yields go down, price is going up. That means there's buying. Where is the buying coming from? Probably some of it's coming off those equity funds right now, but it's nothing spectacular even there. The market is just kind of in a quiet mood. Now gold just barely found its way above that $2,000 magic neckline, and I don't know if it's going to stay there. It probably will dip below it. So that, there's that. Now, Euro is appreciating against the dollar. Mm -hmm. We're now at about a dollar ten and a half for a euro. So the dollar is weakening. And the same is true with the uh, British pound. It's appreciating against the dollar. So the dollar is weakening against those. The good news for that is, uh, uh, the good news on that is that that makes our exports to those countries cheaper. So we get more uh, of their currency in exchange, which is great. But of course, that means that the European and British goods coming to the United States are, are going to be more expensive. So that French wine you were planning to buy, it's going to be going up in price. Or those British uh, biscuits you wanted to buy, going up in price. Uh, because our dollar is weakening against these currencies. Now, interestingly, the yen, the, this is backwards. When it goes, the, goes uh, up on this chart, that means that the yen is weakening. And if it goes down, the yen is strengthening, simply because it's backwards to a normal quote. It's a direct quote instead of an indirect quote. But, uh, but even there, the yen ha is still stronger right now than it was at the beginning of the day. So we, our currency is weakening against other currencies around the world, primarily because we are backing off interest rate increases. That's what we'll talk about today in the Federal Reserve, is as we are, our interest rates don't 
go up as fast as other countries, those other countries' currencies appreciate against the dollar. So that's where that is. Now in Tokyo, Tokyo had a run in the uh, morning over there, but then it fizzled out and barely uh, had a positive day overall. Uh, and then when London turned on, it started out really down and it groveled up, but it finished pretty much almost flat for the day. So across the world, we're having almost this wait and see attitude. What's going, what's going to happen next? We are worried about a recession here in the United States, as are other countries around the world. If you will look at this last yield curve here, the one from that would be Friday, you can see that the see the drop, see the uh, inversion starting there, and it's going down, down, and it keeps going down. That's that's bad. That's a that's an inverted yield curve, and it isn't healing itself very quickly. So recession maybe three to six months out. So get your jobs early and often uh, or stay in school for a while longer until we pass through this uh, perilous phase here. Now let me go to our topic for today which is the Federal Reserve. I start this one out in the 1600s. Now, the government having a bank, a central bank, began to have some favor in European countries, even back in the 1600s. There was no official central bank, but in uh, several countries, there was a powerful bank run by a powerful family, wealthy family, and it kind of took on uh, unofficially the role of a central bank. And by the 1700s, that had become official in some developed countries. A central bank, the, the sovereign bank, as it were, that had had power over all banks and had uh, the ability to create a currency for the sovereign. When the United States came into existence as a nation, uh, by the eight, 1780s, of course, the Constitution was put into place, ratified, but there was not a mention of a central bank in the Constitution. Uh, the only uh, thing the Constitution said was that Congress shall have the power of coinage, making, uh, uh, making the currency. They, they'll decide how it's done, how much there is, and what its value is, and all that. That was how far they wanted to push that. At that time, the early American experience was one of fierce independence. Any move the central government would make would be viewed with extreme suspicion. Other than the ability to possibly muster a federal army, the federal government didn't have a lot of power. And so creating a central bank was not really going to fly. In the early 1800s, a first attempt at a national bank was made 
but it fizzled out because it was poorly constructed and just not a good idea at all. Another attempt that was more serious came a few years later with a second national bank. Unfortunately, we ended up with a president who saw himself as the ultimate populist. He was an asshole as a human being, Andrew Jackson, pompous, arrogant, a genocidal killer of Indians and all that great stuff. And boy, he got, he got wind of this second national bank and he ordered federal troops to go raid the bank, take the money and give it to people. That was the end of that whole idea right there. And there wasn't any more, anything more about it for decades. Now, Civil War was kind of like a watershed in the American experience. Before the Civil War, you would have heard the term, these United States. After the Civil War, the, the wording began to change to the United States, recognizing that there was a central government, that it had a role in the society in general, and we pay for that with the largest number of killed people in American history during the Civil War. But it finally got the federal government to be recognized as a force to be reckoned with. Still though, you had the power of money. Our government was the best government money could buy and that persisted all through the last half of the 19th century. And only near the end of the 19th century did the government begin to flex muscle over business and economic activity in a very serious way. In 1890, surprisingly, the first anti-monopoly law was passed. It was weak and the big, uh, the big capitalists figured out how to get around it pretty quickly and so it took some learning to know how to do those kinds of things. But in the second decade of the, of the 20th century, 1910 from there, you began to see more influence of what you might call progressive politicians. We actually elected a president, Woodrow Wilson, who was kind of a, of what you might call, what would be called today a liberal. And you had more willingness of Congress to look at problems of the economy on the micro level and say, we need to do things about these. They fixed that original antitrust law so that it had better teeth. They did some other things and they tackled banking. You see in the 1870s and after that, the, bank, the banks were just a wild west. Every scammer, con, con artist, thief you could imagine. You had sod banks that would pop up in boom towns long enough to get people's money and then the principals would take off. You had banks that didn't keep adequate reserves for people who wanted their money back and the banks would collapse. And sometimes a very reputable bank, like yours perhaps, would get sucked into a maelstrom from a bank that had a run. 
it was a bad bank, and everyone freaks out and says, well, let's get our money out of his bank too. You don't have the money because you had a, res a fraction of the money. And so you could have these domino effects across entire cities, and it would ultimately, it created some ungodly recessions, macroeconomic effects, uh, recessions that would last years for God's sake. So there was an understanding that the banking system had to be brought under control. But it took a lot more guts than anyone had in the 19th century or the first decade of the 20th century. But finally, finally, reason began to take hold. find myself a marker that might work here to do this. Let's see if this one is any good. Oh, yeah. The Federal Reserve Act of 1913 was passed. It created the Federal Reserve System, a full-on central bank. Among the first thing that it did was to create a board of governors. This would be seven highly reputable, well-educated individuals who would oversee the system. They would take the laws of Congress and they would turn them into regulations that banks would have to follow. Now the board has seven members who are appointed by the president with the advice and consent of the, of the Senate. Historically, this was seven old white men. More diversity has come to the board now. We have a, uh, we've had a woman who is the chairman now. The chairman is one of the seven members. Don't let me bluff you on a test. The Board of Governors has seven uh, governors plus a chairman. No, it has seven governors. One of them is the chairman. So make sure you understand that. So the Board of Governors is the heavy top. Then the Act divided the country into 12 districts. Each one overseen by a district bank. Unfortunately, that original division of the country it, the districts on the East Coast were very small because there was such high degree of economic activity and the districts on the West Coast were huge because hardly anyone was there. Anyone was there. Okay, well that's a disaster now with the, the West Coast having, you know, all this population has gone there. So like the San Francisco Bank has this huge territory and there is a huge amount of economic activity. <coughs> so. That's something I don't, they, they'll never fix it, obviously, but 
uh, at the same time, you can see the districts on our paper money. You'll see a little logo on the dollar bill, an A, a B, or a C. That's where that paper was printed. Uh, that money was printed at that district bank. We are actually right near a border between the di district bank in Chicago and the district bank in St. Louis. If I read the map right, we're about 40 miles inside of the Chicago zone. So well, we're overseen by that bank, uh, the, the Chicago bank. Go a little bit south from here and you're going to be in the St. Louis district. And each bank kind of has its own thing. Like, for example, I've said it before, St. Louis District Bank kind of sees one of its big jobs as education and uh, getting uh, awareness of what happens. Like that, that um, little video, animated video I want you to watch, that was produced by the St. Louis Bank. They have all these educational materials. I can just ask them and they'll say, oh, sure, we got these games and puzzles. You can even go on, you can even go on their site and play online games that teach you about this kind of stuff. But every one of them has its own thing. One that will come up prominently in just a little while in this lecture is the New York Bank. It's called the Empire Bank, and it has a very important role in carrying out Federal Reserve policy. But the 12 district banks, each of them has, the 12 district banks, each has a bank president. One bank president per district bank, per district bank. These bank presidents are consummate professionals. They, uh, I've seen two of them and heard them speak in my life. I didn't want to go near them. They're, they're highly educated in banking, finance, economics, business. They're, they never talk too much. They're reserved in their actions. I don't think they've even ever had sex. But uh, they, they're just that, they're, they are that way. They're, I, I, I didn't even want to sit too close to them because they might identify me as a small demon that I am. But uh, they are heavy duty. Now, there is an important committee. I'll talk about it a lot later. It's called the Federal Open Market Committee, the FOMC. The Federal Open Market Committee, FOMC. This comprises the seven governors plus five district bank presidents. Now, of those five, four serve two-year rotating terms. And one is a permanent voting member. The one that is a permanent voting member 
is the district bank president of the Empire Bank in New York. There's a reason for that, and I'll explain it here in a while. But that one sits, they don't rotate the term. Now the rotation is to bring in new ideas, new uh, economic leanings. Like for example, recently one of the uh, four that serves rotating term, he finished his term, he was an inflation hawk from hell. Now cut the money supply to zero, that'll stop this inflation. And uh, then another one comes in who's a little bit less ferocious about stopping inflation now and all that. But this helps to add fresh blood to the discussions. And those are open, honest discussions, as is everything at the Federal Reserve. One of the things, if you work for the Federal Reserve, and I strongly encourage you to try to get an internship there or a job there, they are, their opinions are not dismissed. You, you'll have highly divergent views on economic growth and what makes the economy work better, what is a bad idea, and they just have at it. And out of that comes pretty darn good policy usually not always and i'll talk about that too in a little while but anyway that fomc is pl plays an outsized role in the economy it affects not just the economy but it affects us as individuals households cities states and remember none of these people are elected these are appointed positions Taking it back, pulling it back now, the Federal Reserve Act said that there were three jobs the Federal Reserve System would have. The first of those jobs would be to regulate and supervise the banking system. Pay attention here because I ask this on the final. I promise you, I promise you I will ask about this. The regulation is by the governors. They take laws that are passed by Congress and they turn them into actionable regulations. Okay, Congress did all this flowery language. Here's what it means for you banks to do. Now the supervision is by the district banks. So, Congress passes laws. The governors create the re regulations pursuant to those laws and then they promulgate those to the district banks and the district banks enforce the laws on the banks in their district. They go all the time. The teams are out there auditing banks. They just go out, they go in, they audit the banks. And so, and they do so in compliance with what the governors have said the regulations are. So the governors say, district banks, 
here are the regulations you enforce. The district banks then tell the banks in their district, here's what you have to do, we're going to come and make sure that you're doing it. That's how they work. And I will ask this, which is correct. The uh, governors uh, supervise and the district banks regulate. B, the district banks supervise and the governors regulate. C, the governors and the district banks both regulate and supervise. I can give it to you a lot of different ways in a nice little multiple choice question just so you know how it works the right way. Now, the second job the Federal Reserve Act said you do is that the Federal Reserve serves as a bank for banks. I mean, people need a place to have a checking account. Banks do too. They can't do their own checking account. That's not allowed. So they, the Federal Reserve says, we can be where you deposit your money and you write checks off us. However, the Federal Reserve Act says that the Fed cannot overcompete with private banks that offer the same services. So you would have a commercial bank, maybe city, or something in Citigroup, that would also do banking services for banks. So you could come to me, the Fed, to have your checking account, or you could go to a commercial bank and do the same thing. Now here's how this works, according to the law. The Federal Reserve is not allowed to pr do predatory pricing to take business away from the commercial banks. It's not allowed to do that. And much more importantly, the Federal Reserve is charged with constantly improving and innovating banking technology. And once it does that, it has to share it with all of its competing private banks. That means that those, uh, you remember in the old checks, uh, paper checks, they had that MIRC uh, magnetic code there at the bottom. That was a Fed innovation, and once the Fed had gotten it into place, it said, here's the technology to all of its competing private banks, now let's all use it together. ATM technology, that was originated by the Fed in its bank for banks, and then it was just given. So here's the code, here's how it works, go to it. And even at that, every year, the Federal Reserve, through its banking operations, gives back to the U.S. Treasury several billion dollars in profit. It just gives it back. We made this, now it belongs to the people. The Treasury gets this money every year. Someone asked me, uh, some years back that, well, how much of the banking uh, business does the Fed get versus the private commercial banks? I didn't know. So I called one of my former fellow PhD students who was at the Fed in St. Louis and I, I said, well, what, what are the numbers on percentages? And he said, well, I can't speak for the whole system. I can speak only for the St. Louis district, but we've got about 65% of the business and the co private commercial banks have about 35 percent. 
Okay, well that's, okay. How do you know about profitability of those commercial banks? He said, oh yeah, they make more than we do. They make more than we do. Mm-hmm. So, okay. You have a system where the government offers a service and the private sector offers the same service and they have coexisted for a century and no one has been hurt and there is profit to be made. Imagine back in the uh, decade, more than a decade ago, the whole health healthcare insurance debate went to a boil. You had one side saying universal coverage provided by the government and the other side saying no, private free enterprise will solve all of our problems. And I wrote a couple of papers saying, look, why don't we just do it like the Fed does? The government offers a health insurance program and it competes directly under the same rules like the Fed program does that the commercial, uh, private commercial insurers can. Of course, no one wanted to hear that. Everyone just wanted to spit venom at each other and call each other names. Uh, right-wing conservative, libtard. They didn't want a, a solid, proven solution. So there you are. But anyway, enough about that. Now, the last job of the Fed is to conduct monetary policy. to make sure that the money supply grows at about the same rate as the real growth rate of the economy. You grow it too fast, you get inflation. You grow it too slow, and you get deflation, which is a horrible thing. So the Fed was charged with keeping this system right on track. It has three different tools that it can use for monetary policy. And they are in order from the one that would be the least frequently used to the most frequently used. In order to do that, though, I'll take you back many centuries. You see, there were banks, even in medieval times. Now, interestingly enough, Banks need to make a profit. So there was an interest rate charged for loans, and that was just abominable, and the uh, Holy Roman Catholic Church forbade charging interest rates. Hence why you had banks that were run by Jewish citizens who were not under the authority of the Pope. They had banks that were pretty darn successful. You have $1,000. You bring it to my bank. I will keep it safe. And you can come back and get some whenever you need it. So I need to keep some in the bank. The rest I can lend out to make money off, to make a profit. That's a fractional reserve system. The problem is that some banks did, some banks didn't. No bank was going to keep a lot of money because they wanted to lend out as much as they could to make money. But the problem was that there was no consolidated system. And when more so- sophisticated banking came about, 
Well, it was anybody's guess whether this was a bank that had your money when you went back to get it. And that was the important thing about setting up a fractional reserve system. So now we get to the three tools of monetary policy. The first one would be to set a required reserve ratio. How much of your deposits do you have to keep for people who want them back? And that creates an interesting little mathematical phenomenon. Okay, let me write here. Amount on balance sheet. In the first column. In the second column, required reserve. And the third column, available to lend. You, sir, come to my bank and you got a thousand dollars. Okay? So I put on my balance sheet in the liabilities a thousand dollars that belong to you. Let's say that the required reserve ratio is 10%. I must keep 10% of that in the vault. If you need some of it, you write a check and or something like that. So that would leave, mean $100. So that would give me $900 that was available to lend. You, sir, come to me and say, I've got a business idea and I need some money. You do. What is it? Well, I want to start my own escort service. Indeed. You changed your name to Sven. Sven, you know, like Uber Eats, Sven Eats, you know. And so, shut up. <laughs> you hire this, so I, well, I, should, I shall lend you $900. Well, you get that $900 and do all the mass marketing and all that kind of stuff. Put up the signs, hire the talent. Eh. What the, I put an ad in the paper. Okay. And you get that $900. Maha, I got $900. You take it back and you put it in my bank. Well, I have to keep $90 of that. And so I have $810 to lend. Well, that's where uh, you, madam, come in. You come into my bank. You say, I, I have a business idea. You do. Is it like that guy? No, no, no. Uh, I'm going to do, do uh, gluten-free deliveries of food. Really, what are you going to call it? Tasteless eats. Uh, and so you, oh, okay, I shall lend you $810. And you give that, you do the marketing and all that kind of stuff, 
the website and try to convince people that high fiber food doesn't make you go to the toilet too much. And uh, you bring that $810 back and put it in my bank. And I keep 10% of it and I have So I'm having 29 to land. So that would go over here. Do you see what's happening? A multiplier effect. You are generating money just mathematically. How much does this come out to at the end of this whole cycle? Well, it turns out that the money multiplier, MM, will be 1 over the required reserve. So in that case, that would be 1 over 0 0.10, which is 10. So I take that $1,000, the original deposit, times 1 over 0 0.10, that $1,000 created $10,000. If I raised it to 20% required reserve, that would slow it down. The money multiplier would be 1 over 0 0.20, which is 5, so it would be only 5,000. If I reduced the required reserve to 5%, it would be 1 over 0 0.05, which is 20, so it would create $20,000. Now you can see how this is like a meat axe. The Fed sets that required reserve ratio. If it sets it very high, it slows the growth of the money supply. If it sets it very low, then whoa, the money supply expands very rapidly. That's why this is the least used of the three. It's just because it's like a meat axe. You make a tick on that thing and the money supply just goes bleh. Someone asked me a long time ago, well, what is the actual one the Fed has? And now, it doesn't change it very often, obviously, but here's the funny part. I called St. Louis again. I said, okay, what's the money model? What, what's the fractional reserve ratio? Talking like I knew, uh, I, you know, I got advanced degrees. I, uh, I'm asking a really intelligent question. And the guy said, which one? And I said, well, wait, what? What do you mean, which one? He said, yeah, it comes in tranches. And now a tranche is a block of money. He said that, I, I don't remember the exact numbers, he said there is a required reserve ratio for banks with, ask, with cash up to, I think it was like 50 million. And then there's another one for the tranche from 50 million, one dollar up to, I don't know, it was like 200 million or something like that. And then there's a third fractional reserve ratio for the one from above that. Oh, I didn't know that. So what's the first tranche uh, required reserve ratio? And he said zero. What? Yeah, zero. They don't have to hold any money? Well, they do. I mean, they're not stupid. Yeah, but, but he said, no, that's part of you know, how we make these banks profitable, like community banks, little banks. They don't have a required reserve ratio. I was, I was just floored by that. Are you kidding me? And then he said, when the one above that was like point, it was 2.5%. The one above the tranche above that is, I mean, I had no idea that it was that complex, but you know, there you are. So in other words, the bigger the bank, the more they 
they want to keep that growth of the money supply in those, from those giant banks to a, a grow rapidly. So that was that. Was that. It was, oh, oh that's kind of cool. I didn't know that. And so, but like he said though, the banks are not stupid. They'll keep reserves because they have to honor checks that you write. They have to have money to come out of the machine if you go to your bank with your debit card. So they do have money in their system, uh, reserve, obviously. Now, the second tool of monetary policy The Fed lends money to banks that, meet, that need money. The FOMC sets a discount rate. This is the rate at which a bank can borrow money from the discount window at the Fed. This is like a signal the Fed uses. Well, the Federal Reserve just raised the discount rate by a quarter of a percent. The Federal Reserve just lowered the discount rate by a quarter of a percent. The Federal Reserve did not change the discount rate. What essentially the Fed is doing is signaling the markets of its sentiment about how the economy is doing. Like right now, the Fed has raised the discount rate at every FOMC meeting, I think eight times now, to up, up, up. We're going to, we're, we, do, we do not want the economy growing as fast as it is. And therefore, we're going to jack up this rate and other rates will follow it upward. Banks don't have to borrow from the discount window though. They can actually borrow from each other. It's called the federal funds market. It's completely supply and demand. How, many, how much money is in the federal funds market? You know, what banks have in their deposit, in their deposit, how much is demanded? And so it's a completely free market rate, the federal funds rate. The Fed can't set that rate. It can move that rate toward a target. You know, if it drains money from the economy, well, that would mean that the federal funds rate would go up because there wouldn't be as much money in the pool. Or if it poured money into the economy, well, that would mean there was more money in the federal funds market, so rates would go down. However, you will hear on news programs, especially financial news programs, the Federal Reserve set the federal funds rate at, no, it didn't. It set a target, but it certainly didn't set the rate. The Fed says, okay, the discount rate is 4.25%. That, that they can do. We'll just charge banks that come to us 4.25%. The Fed has a target for the federal funds rate of 5.14% or 5.15%. That means that they want it to be there. They will try to make it go there by taking money out of the economy if the federal funds rate is less than that, but they can't set it. Be sure you know that when I ask something about that on, the, on an exam. The federal, uh, the federal Reserve sets the federal funds rate. No, it doesn't. 
Interestingly though, historically, the discount rate is below the federal funds rate, and yet banks oftentimes will go to the federal funds market to borrow money. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, yeah, uh, well, uh, many banks, instead of using the Federal Reserve and paying the discount rate, let's say 4.25%, what they would do is they would go to the federal funds market, which has a higher rate, and they would borrow there. Why would they do that? Why would a bank that could go to the Fed discount window and borrow, let's say, $10 million at 4.25%, Instead, just go to the federal funds market and borrow that same money at a higher rate. Why would it do that? Okay, let me try this. You're my son. You're his friend. I'm the Federal Reserve. You can come to me and borrow money at a low rate. He's going to charge you out the ass. You come to me and you borrow a thousand, I say, Dad, can I borrow a thousand dollars? Well, I probably will lend it to you, but I'll whoop your ass and want to know why. And you'll have to explain to me that guy who works in the garage with the mask on and the profitable enterprise that you kind of lost the shipment. He's not going to ask you. Bro, sure, charge out the ass, but I'll, here it's a thousand dollars. You see, the Fed you step up to them, and generally speaking, you're <laughs> we need some money to cover our required reserve ratio for the night. <laughs> uh, you, you got the idea? With the federal funds market, you just say, click, sure, meh, the money's there. Covered the federal required reserve ratio at the end of the, at the, end of the day. Okay, that's why you'll see very vibrant federal funds market, even though it, it's private, so it's free market interest rates set by supply and demand conditions in the federal funds market. By the way, when I say federal funds market, that is this vast ocean of all of the money the banks have. I, that's simplistic. But it's like banks with their money in there, they can, it can be lent, it can be borrowed from that vast ocean. And the Federal Reserve itself actually can pump money into that market or slurp money out of it. But, so it can affect the federal funds rate, but not in a direct way. Like it can say, the discount rate is, it can't do that. It has to use the third mechanism to work that federal funds market. And that takes us to the third one. C, open market operation. These are done every day, day in, day out, the OMOs. Countless billions of dollars are flowing through our economy, through our lives, and hardly anybody knows about this. This is our world. That's why I've told you before, we're professionals and we have to take care of people who don't know this. And the people who don't understand it, they come up with all these bizarre theories and conspiracy theories and wacko ideas. And we try 
our best make them informed, but at the same time we know that this is past them and we just have to know that this is happening all around us. And it, we influence it, we are influenced by it, we understand it, at least to some extent, but it's not common knowledge. The OMOs are, there are, I'm going to give you a simple scenario of open market operations. However, they can get the ways and the tricks and the methods are just mind-boggling. In several of my advanced finance classes, I, I go through some of these. And even sometimes I'm, I feel like I'm seeing the wheels on the bus go round and round because the, I don't expect the students to fully understand some of these. And some of them are changing from day to day how the trick is done. Sometimes a new one pops up that I, there was one I really didn't even understand how they were doing this. It has to do with a, an exotic instrument called repurchase agreements and reverse repurchase agreements. But I mean, I'm going to give you the basic outline of how this works. And remember, this is done all the time. It starts back here at the beginning of this whole story when I was talking about the FOMC, the Federal Open Market Committee. Now the FOMC has eight scheduled meetings a year, but it can also have other meetings. It can call meetings other than those two. So the FOMC meets and watch that stupid little animated video because they show this happening. They don't exactly explain it in detail, but there are a couple of interesting things going on. They'll have a vote. Do we add liquidity? drain liquidity, or kind of keep things level. And there'll, there'll be the discussion, the seven governors and the five board, uh, district bank presidents, they'll have this open, very honest discussion. If you watch the video, they have this animated round table where all these people are talking, and then when the vote happens, you notice that there's no one in the room but the 12, and maybe a couple of note takers. These are a, the vote is secret. Because here's the thing, if everyone knows that the Fed is about to drain liquidity, you would have speculators as fast as they could take positions with interest rates betting that they would rise. And as they took those positions, the interest rates would rise and we wouldn't want them to because we're going to make them rise. So we can't let the outside traders know what exactly we're going to do at any given time. In fact, on a day-to-day -day basis, you'll see open market, let's say the, Fed, the FOMC says drain liquidity. So on any given day, you might see the money supply go down, but some days it might go up simply to drive out the speculators. So it's not like drain liquidity and every day 
money's coming out. Some days it might go in just to blast, uh, drive out the, you know, the players in the market. So let's see. Now, here's how it works. The FOMC meets and they vote. Now remember I told you about that one permanent member of the Open Market Committee, District Bank Presidents, the Empire Bank. There's a reason that person is always going to be on the committee because that's where these open market operations will actually be executed. That once the vote is taken, let's say, well, the vote is taken. Now, the Empire Bank president goes right to his bank, the Empire Bank. Now, in the Empire Bank, there is a place called the Domestic Trading Desk, the DTD. Now, when I say desk, I don't mean some nice thing you bought from Souder and put together. The desk is floor after floor of Federal Reserve traders. The desk manager issues the order to all the traders to carry out what the FOMC has voted and the bank president has told them to do. The desk manager goes to all the traders. Now here we're going to zoom in on one domestic trading desk trader. Now that trader is going to have a ginormous wad of money, cash, dollars. That trader is also going to have a ginormous desk full of T-bills. They are equivalent in safety and liquidity. The only difference is the dollars can be lent and borrowed, T-bills can't. So, this trader has a group of banks with whom he or she works. Here's a bank. Now the bank also has dollars and T-bills. That's its reserve, tier one capital. Every bank has to have a certain amount of tier one capital. They can have it in dollars, they can have it in T-bills, but it has to be there. So now, the trader calls the bank. Go back over here. Let's say that the order was, the FOMC said, drain liquidity. Pull dollars out of the banking system. Suck that Federal Reserve pool down. So the trader calls the bank. Okay. You're the trader, I'm the bank. Ring, ring, I'm the bank. Hello, I'm a bank. You say, hi, I'm a trader. I should like to sell you some T-bills. Really? Yes. Okay, well, what's gonna happen is you sell me a T-bill and I send to the Fed dollars that they shred. Every day until you're told differently, sell T-bills 
and get the dollars up here to shred. Do you see how that's how they will drain the, the money supply? Vast oceans are being pulled out this way by the traders, draining liquidity. And notice, interestingly enough, as the demand for the T-bills is going up, the price of T-bills is going up. Uh, well, let me get, get into that too much. I promised I wouldn't do that. Let's say that it's the opposite. Suppose that they say add liquidity. The domestic trading desk gets the orders, the manager says to the traders, okay, so now you're going to, the trader's going to say, I want to buy your T-bills. Really? Yes. So they're going to send T-bills back to the Fed and they're going to send dollars to the banks to add liquidity. That's how it's done. Yes? No, I can say, uh, he calls me, he says, I'd like to uh, buy some T-bills from you. And I'll say, kiss my ass. So he has to raise the price. I'll give you, I'll give you more. Okay, I'll do that. But as the price goes up, the yield goes down. So in other words, as they're adding liquidity, they're also at the same time causing interest rates to fall. Taken the other way, suppose that you're trying to, I should, uh, I should want to uh, sell you some T-bills. I don't want your T-bills. Kiss my ass. Okay, I'll cut the price of them. Okay, I'll buy them. Price of T-bills goes down, interest rates go up. So in other words, the two effects are happening at the same time. Liquidity is being added causing interest rates to fall, or liquidity is being drained, causing interest rates to go up. Don't, I'm not going to ask it this detailed on the exam. It takes a while to, to get this, but know that this is happening every day to the tune of billions and billions of dollars. This is how the Fed regulates the money supply. So over the past like nine months or so, the Fed has been jacking up the discount rate. That's, our sig that's the Fed's signal. We want interest rates to go up. And then, at the same time, the, uh, the FOMC has been sending the message to the trading desk, buy, uh, sell the uh, banks T-bills, get their dollars. Sell them T-bills, get their dollars. And as they do that, the money supply goes down. That's how they control the money supply. That's what they've been doing uh, for the last nine months, is just slowly draining all of that liquidity overhang that had happened over the past uh, some years. You see, in 2000, we were slipping into a mild recession. The president at the time strong-armed the Fed, don't let this happen. So, of course, what the Fed does is add liquidity, more money. And that created a liquidity overhang. We still kind of slid into a little bit of a recession. It wasn't much. But then COVID hit, and then the government just started handing out COVID checks, those PPP loans that then they, they then forgave. Uh, so then that liquidity overhang just got enormous. All that extra money created well, spank me, Jesus, inflation. And so then the Fed had to turn around. Okay, 
We're out of the crisis with the COVID. We're, we know this it might throw us into a recession, but we've got to get this liquidity overhang out. So they've been essentially doing the operations where they've just been draining dollars from the banks by selling them T-bills like there's no tomorrow just to drain that extra money that had been building up since 2020, 2019, 2020. And so, you know, it, 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 that's how it's done. That's how we regulate. That's how modern economies work. And there are all kinds of conspiracy theories about the evil Fed. I want to show you something here as the last part of this that's kind of telling. You see, we break down the money supply into several different tranches or blocks. They're blocks, really. Now, at the very lowest level is M0. This is nothing but cash and currency. You hardly hear anyone talk about M0. Now, obviously, the Fed controls this with a, with a vice grip. It also controls the next level, M1. M1 is M0 and also checking accounts at banks, demand deposits, because both of them are highly liquid. There's a third one in here, interestingly enough, that doesn't mean anything anymore. M1 technically has traveler's checks in it, too. I don't think, does it, has anyone ever used traveler's checks? They used to be big. You know, whenever you went overseas, don't leave home without it. Because you could always, if your traveler's checks were stolen, you could get them back immediately. Okay, that's demand deposits and M0 and traveler's checks, but I don't even write those. The Fed has a vice grip on those. The Fed controls the short-term, highly liquid money supplies. The next one is a little bit dodgier, M2. M2 is M1 plus an animal called a negotiable order of withdrawal account, a now account, negotiable order of withdrawal. A now account. Now what's a now account? Some of you use them every day. Credit unions, those checks that you get from a credit union, they're not demand deposits, they're now accounts. You see a now, a demand deposit, you come to me with a, a bank, my bank with a check from him, I immediately honor it. It's from a bank. So it has perfect liquidity. However, if you come to me with a credit union check, I will probably honor it right away, but I don't have to. I have 30 days. We'll come back in 30 days, I'll give you your money. You're going to beat the crap out of me, but that's the way it works. Now accounts are, they seem like regular demand deposits, but they technically aren't. And so we put those in M2 because they don't have as much liquidity. And we also have small-time deposits, CDs. I can't tell you the exact amount. I think it's up to $10 million CDs. 
They are not as liquid. You can get your money back, but substantial interest penalty for early withdrawal. So they're not as liquid. Now the last rank is, and oh, oh by the way, the Fed doesn't control this one as much. Sure, it controls M1, but now accounts are credit unions and those aren't the Fed. And small time deposits, the Fed doesn't control those either. So you're seeing loss of control with the lower liquidity as you go to the larger money, monetary aggregates as we call them. Now the last one, M3. This is the bastard because that's M2 plus the large time deposits plus the evil of our money, American dollars, in the central banks of other countries. For lack of a better term, I call those the Euro dollars. Every time you buy a car from Japan, your dollars go to the central bank of Japan. They're American dollars. Our Fed has no control over those whatsoever. Every time you buy a toaster from China, those dollars go over to the People's Bank of China. They're American dollars, but we don't control those. The Chinese do. You buy, we buy oil from Canada. Well, that, those American dollars are now in the Central Bank of Canada. We don't control. So you see that massive loss of control there in M3. It just goes wherever the hell it wants. So now I'm going to show you something. And I caution you against being too much into conspiracy theories. You've got ones about the Fed. Well, it's controlled by the Freemasons. I got one. Uh, it's controlled by the Jewish communist cons uh, global conspiracy. The Fed is controlled by aliens and all that kind of stuff. Well, here's one that, here's something to show you in your resources tab. See if I've got it here. Now, the Fed actually stopped reporting M3 because it was getting so far out of hand that they said, oh, no one uses it, so they stopped reporting it. So we had to start collecting the data from private sources to keep calculating it. Now, the first thing to show you, you notice that in 2004, in around 2005, M3 started going crazy. It was going skyrocket because we were buying so many imports and then exporting our dollars to the central banks of other countries. The Fed stopped reporting it because it was looking too grim. This was, I published this in uh, 2008. This graph in the spring in 2008, I said, look what's happening here. Okay, now M3 was just completely out of control. M2 was losing it, kind of. Now these are growth rates of, these aren't the amount of money, these are the growth rates. They were accelerating, the growth rate of M3 was accelerating. The growth rate of M5, M, M2 was high, but it was not accelerating. 
So what did the Fed do? The only one it controlled was M1, so it cut the growth rate of M1 to zero. That's why we had that crash in 2008. It wasn't because of a bubble or any crap like that. It was because the Fed cut the grease of the economy, M1, what businesses use, what households use. It had cut its growth rate to zero. That's like cutting the amount of oil in your engine to zero. And so the economy buckled. There was no other reason. The Fed tried to cover its ass all kinds of different ways, but there's no question what really happened. One last thing I want to tell you before you leave. Sometimes people say, well, what's this huge spike out here in 2001? Well, that was when the Fed put all of these armored trucks on the road right after the attacks of 9-11. They thought that people would freak and run the banks. Oddly enough, they didn't. So as you can see, the Fed drained that liquidity back out of the banks some months later. There's only one problem with this explanation. Look when the, the money supply started, that money started pouring into the banks. It wasn't on September 11th. It was back here in June. The trucks were on the road filling the banks with money. Why would they have been doing that if no one could possibly have imagined that there would be attack in September? I don't think you can find this chart at the Fed anymore. There's probably a good reason for that. That's all I have for you today. I thank you.